Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you made it this morning. Uh, you might be wondering where everybody is. Uh, we sent a couple of hundred students up to Hume this morning, and uh, so all of their parents and family came to the nine o'clock to see them sent off. And so um, I think we, uh, yeah, we, we definitely surpassed some of our um, fire code limits uh, this morning. Um, and so that's where everybody is this morning. You're looking around going, man, this is kind of weird. Nobody, I didn't know. You know, maybe they just thought it was late. Uh, we are uh, so thrilled about what God is doing in this season. It's so fun to watch. Um, and and I, I know we, we shouldn't be surprised by it because that's what God does. He continues to work um, in the lives of our students and our kids. Um, but in the last several weeks, we had VBS here. As you guys know, we spent um, last Sunday kind of celebrating what God did there. And there was um, a number of kids that made first-time decisions um, for Jesus to follow him, to trust in Jesus um, for the first time this past uh, two weeks ago. And then um, a, a whole bunch of elementary kids went this past week to Camp Good News, which is down in uh, at Lake Lopez, Lopez Canyon. Um, and they were there this past week learning about Jesus. And some of those kids, um, for the first time, are, are understanding who God is as their creator. And we heard of uh, some of the conversations in the cabins being like, kids, I just never knew that. I never knew that, that God did that. You know, so these light bulbs are going on for our kids. And then we send, you know, these several hundred kids up to Hume today. And, um, and we're expectant and hopeful that God's going to meet them there because we know when we interrupt our rhythm and we pause for the sake of asking God to speak and show himself to us, he always does. And so um, we are thrilled about those students being up there. And so I just want to invite you to pray for them as they're there throughout the week. Um, because so often in, in times uh, circled around cabins and in the chapels and down by the lake and in those conversations and the meetings and the worship time, God just moves and, and some of these students make decisions that will carry them through their lifetime about their faith and, and who they know themselves to be in Christ. So um, some fantastic uh, weeks ahead. I wanted to mention, though, that next Sunday... Um, we're not going to be here. You might have heard that already before. Um, but next Sunday, we're going to be out at the beach at the 1045 service. We call it Church at the Beach. It's kind of a tradition around here. Um, and so our 1045 service will be just north of the Cayucas Pier on the sand, um, which there's not, a, incidentally, not a lot of sand left at the Cayucas Beach these days um, with some of the storms. And so we're going to get cozy, which will be great. Um, we like being cozy as a church. Um, so then we're going to celebrate... Um, baptism and some of the students that have made decisions in the past, this week and, and then the past couple weeks um, will get baptized in the ocean and then we'll do a barbecue following the service. And so um, join us out there if you really can't make it um, and you still want to participate and be part of church next week. Um, please come. Uh, we have an eight o'clock service. And so you can come to our eight o'clock service here on campus. Otherwise, we'll um, we'll put a video um, message online that you can watch as well. So um, and then I also wanted to mention that a week, I think it's a week from Monday or maybe two weeks from Monday. Um, I believe it's July 10th. Gerald, is the life saving choice is July 10th? July 10th. We're starting another class, um, which is life's healing choices. And it's such a great class. Um, to begin asking the questions, um, what are the hurts that I'm dealing with and how do I approach those and bring those to Jesus for healing? And so um, that starts on Monday night, July 10th, in, in case you're looking for a, a way to, to plug in and, and get connected this summer. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to plow right on ahead. We're in Matthew 17, and this morning there's this 
peculiar little story of uh, Peter and Jesus and a fish and a coin. So what happens is the temple tax collectors, so the people that um, stood at the temple to make sure that everybody paid their annual fees, um, asked Peter, they said, hey, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And Peter goes, yeah, of course, sure. Uh, yes. And then he goes over to Jesus and then he says, hey, Jesus, do we pay? Do you pay the temple tax? And Jesus responds and he says, Peter, do you think that the king is owed a tax from the son of the king? Does the son pay the tax or, or do the public people pay the tax? And Peter says, well, the public people, the son doesn't pay the tax. And he goes, then the sons are free. Then we don't pay. I don't pay the tax. See, he's inferring to this kingdom in which God is the king, his father, and the temple is the throne or the palace of God the father. And so there is no tax owed by Jesus Christ, the son to the father, because he's part of the kingdom. But what Jesus says is so that we don't offend them, just go pay the tax. And so he says, go get a fish out of the lake and pull up the fish. And when you pull up the fish, there's going to be a coin in the fish's mouth. And it's going to be the right amount to pay for you and for me. And it'll be settled. Crazy, weird story, right? Like you're looking at it thinking, that's a very, a very unique miracle. And if everything Jesus does is intentional, what am I supposed to learn from that? And what, what's he doing and what's he trying to teach us through this miracle? Now, I, I wanted... To bring a largemouth bass in a bucket, I was all, it was all figured out how to do that. And I was going to pull it out of the bucket and pull a coin out of the fish's mouth. And my wife, Cheryl, in her discernment says, you can't do that. And I said, why not? You can't, you just, you can't bring a live fish. And then, anyway, I was shot down. So no fish, sorry. You just have to picture it in your mind. Jesus does a hat trick, basically. It's like, hey, watch this. Boom, pull the fish out, pull the fish out. There's a coin in there. Like David Blaine or something, right? Like just, well, there it is. But I really think as I kind of process through this passage that it's not about the miracle. The miracle is sort of like a sidebar. It's like, just get the, get the money and pay the tax. How are we going to get the money? I don't know. Go get a fish. Just pay the tax because this is not a hill we will die on. There are bigger fish to fry, right, in Jesus' mind and his ministry. So what I think as we reflect on this and walk through this passage, I, I think it's far less about the miracle and far more about the mission of Jesus. See, what he does is stay focused in this passage on the mission and refuses to allow the things that could distract him from that to draw him away. So take a look with me in Matthew chapter 17. And I want to back up just a few verses from that story because I want you to see what Jesus is trying to teach to his disciples right before this incident takes place. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. If not, follow along on the screen. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? 
From whom do kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook and take a fish, the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. See, he backs up and reminds us in this passage that there is a mission that Jesus is on. It's in very um, brief form in three bullet points in verse 22 that he's going to be delivered, killed, and raised the third day. That is the mission of Jesus. That's why he came to the earth. And after he got done instructing his disciples in his mission and telling them what he came to do and where he's headed... He has this scene where there's some squabble about whether or not he's going to pay the tax. And he responds by simply saying, just to take care of it. It's not worth the fight, Peter. No, I don't have to pay the tax and I can spend the time trying to explain the difference between my identity and my throne and my kingship. But it's just not it's not worth it. There's there's bigger fish to fry. Choose the hills you will die on. And, and what I what I see Jesus doing quite literally is looking to the south toward Jerusalem, towards the hill of Golgotha, saying, this right here is, is not the hill for me to die on. That one over there is the hill I will die on. This has very little significance compared to that. And I think the lesson could be here. You know, we read this passage and we think, well, what do we draw from this? What conclusions can we make is... Well, God will always provide, right? That could be an easy lesson here. There's a coin in the mouth of a fish. That's certainly something we could apply from this passage. But I think more timely and more critical for us this morning in the cultural um, moment that we're living in is to choose your battles. Because not every one of them is worth the fight. I hope you leave this morning when we're all done looking at this scripture with a, with a hunger to discern what hills to die on. That's where I hope we end up this morning, that you would leave and go, I, I want to know how to choose the things that are worth the fight and how to let go of the things that ought to be let go of. And so to do that, I want to walk you through a passage of Scripture in the book of Daniel, because I think there's a, there's a great example of how that plays out in Daniel's life. So just to give you a little historical context, if you remember, Daniel um, is written, he writes kind of his autobiography, if you will, um, of the season in which Israel was taken captive by Babylon and they are in exile, the Babylonian exile, we call it. And so Daniel is living there trying to make sense of this new world, new religion, new culture. And here's what it says in verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. 
Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now this story is starting to make sense. You're recalling these names and you think, oh yeah, the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are the guys that wouldn't bow, that ended up in the furnace. Daniel's the guy that ended up getting thrown in the lion's den. I remember the story. But here's what happens is these guys taken captive in a foreign land, are now brought to the king, and the king says, I want them to be educated the way that we're educated. It's literally a re-education camp. I want to teach them our way, our culture. I want to feed them our food. I want them to speak our language. I want them to understand our value system. Do you see what's happening here? And so with grace, Daniel navigates this road And if you read between the lines and you understand the circumstances, Daniel did not put up a fight on the name change. Right? They called him Belteshazzar. Okay, let that one go. Fine. Call me what you want. He did not put up a fight on the language. Sure, I'll speak your language. That's fine. He could have dug his heels in and just kept his mouth shut and stayed quiet and mute for the entire three years. No, he learned the language and then he was educated on the customs and the history of the Chaldeans. Okay, fine. I'll learn your history. I'll learn your language. You can call me what you want. But then when it came to the point when they wanted him to ingest the food of the king, which would have defiled Daniel, a good Hebrew boy, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's a hill I'll die on. Call me what you want. I'll I'll learn whatever language or history you want. But no, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to bow to your idol. I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to cease praying. You go down through the book and you see all these examples where Daniel's like, no, 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 yes, fine, okay. Right? There were bigger fish to fry. He wasn't so concerned about the language or the culture or understanding what they wanted him to understand about their value system. No, he's going to learn it. But he drew the line somewhere. For him, it was what he'll eat. It was who he worshipped. And it was how he prayed. See, I think we do well to examine the principles that allow for a Daniel and or a Jesus in this case to make these kind of decisions. How do we make those distinctions? What things are, are worth fighting for? And Jesus is a bit more poignant in his ministry. He, he probably stands for more than he lets go of. If you just looked at a, a ratio, Daniel's kind of like a one-to-one ratio, right? Like the food, the worship, the prayer, this, the language, the name, the, um, the history. You know, so, I mean, it's probably like for everything he gave into, there was one thing he stood for. Jesus is standing for far more than he's giving into, particularly because he has a very succinct ministry career. It's only three years, and he's got a large task of re-educating all of Judea on the kingdom of God. So he's got to stand for things that matter, right? But even still, there were areas in which Jesus Seceded, gave in. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay the drachma tax. Let that go. This is not a hill worth dying on. There are bigger fish to fry. And so I think for us this morning, my hope is that we would take a look at some of the principles that that are in this very brief story and learn a an approach toward how to make these distinctions.
That'd be my hope. So the first thing is I think we need to understand the culture. Certainly Peter understood the culture, as did Daniel in his environment. But if I go back to verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes, Peter understood the tax. He knew what the tax was for. He actually knew the origin of the tax as a Jewish boy, understood that it came all the way back from Exodus, where God himself instituted the tax in Exodus 30 that was simply connected to a number, a census number, and a fee for the cost of doing business at the temple. In that case, it was the sanctuary. So it wasn't morally loaded, right? Like this was just a practicality. Yeah, you have to, every person in the census has to pay the tax because there has to be a functional sanctuary. And it had taken several forms since then, you know, during exile and outside of Israel, there were different forms of this temple tax, so to speak. Um, it became voluntary for a, for a season there in Nehemiah's story. Um, it was a third of a shekel instead of a half a shekel. So there's different versions of the temple tax throughout Israeli history, but the point is that this still stood in, in, in Jesus' time as a well-established rhythmic requirement for every adult male over the age of 20. They paid the temple tax. And so paying the tax for Peter, because he knew the culture, he understood why that existed, didn't require a moral compromise. It wasn't going to erode some kind of value system or belief system. So the question really became, are we against the temple tax or not? And Jesus is saying, no, we're, we're not against the temple tax. Do we have to pay it? No, but, but we're not against it. I think knowing the culture means we have to know who the enemy is. Who are we against in this fight? Are we actually against this or, or not is an important question. Uh, a few years ago, I got a phone call um, from someone just in the office, someone I didn't know, and, and he introduced himself as an elder of a local church um, and got right to the point, cut to the chase on the phone. He said, I have heard that Atascadero Bible Church is a cessationist church, which um, was, is sort of like fighting words, you know, on the phone. It's just like, let's just get right to it, you know, kind of thing. Um, if you know kind of historical church doctrine, Cessationists believed that um, the gifts, uh, prophe- gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, um, healings, etc., have ceased when, since the time of the apostles. So when the apostles died, the gifts died with them. That's what a cessationist believes. And by the way, ABC is not a cessationist church. We do believe in the manifestation of spiritual gifts. In fact, I've seen with my own two eyes people get healed on this campus I've seen, um, I've heard words of prophecy spoken over me and our church, words of caution, words of warning. Um, I've heard leadership, uh, people in leadership at our church speak in tongues in an, uh, an appropriate biblical, private way. I'm not a cessationist, but that's sort of beside the point, right? So I get this phone call. He says, yeah, I heard you guys were cessationists. And I'm like, Man, what's the, what are we getting at here, you know? And my instinct kicks in to defend, right? I go, well, that's not true. Let me, let me get the record straight, right? Let me tell you all the things. Like, that's my instinct. That's how, I, that's how I immediately react. And so I explain, you know, you're just misinformed, right? That's 
how I often um, respond to those kind of accusations. Um, but what I wish I would have said, if I had more clarity, maybe just maybe more age and wisdom is all it would have taken. Um, maybe a bit more wit. I would have asked in response to that question, I would have said, do you believe, do you and your church believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he was crucified for the sin of all mankind and he was resurrected on the third day and he ascended into heaven to intercede for all those who would believe in him and call on his name so that we could re-enter relationship with him and spend eternity with God in his new heaven and new earth. Do you believe that? Okay, so let's talk about that, right? I wish I would have responded that way because if we could get on the same page and say, can we agree on this? Do you agree on this? Okay, then this doesn't matter. That's not a hill I'm going to die on. Uh, Let's talk about it if you want to talk about it, but there are bigger fish to fry. There are people that are dying. There are people that are lost without the life-saving truth of Jesus Christ that we've got to go tell them. We have a commission from Scripture to go share the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have a job, and if you have the same job as me, let's do that together, arm in arm. I'm not too concerned about how you view the gifts. And when we start to process through these kind of conversations, I think it's so important that we understand who the enemy is. Because we can, we can start to look at people that are sitting next to us or across the aisle and point fingers and go, yeah, but they believe, you know. I mean, I'd take on any of those issues, dispensationalism, doctrine of election, you know, what, whether it's a post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, you know. Let's have those conversations. Please don't hear me minimizing that. These are important doctrinal beliefs. They inform the way that we interact with one another and the world. They inform the way we We do our ministry from a method standpoint. These things matter, but let's decide who the enemy is and make sure that the argument or the battle is with the enemy, not with the allies. So we have to decide. Who's the the enemy? And see, Jesus had a mission, and he's giving us a mission, and when it comes to these non-essential doctrinal issues we we have to take we have to take into account who the enemy is and fight the battle that that's against the enemy because there is an enemy and his name is satan and he opposes the mission of the church and if we're spending a lot of time fighting sideways then we're not fighting against the one who actually wants to take us out the enemy, according to Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, is anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's anything counter to what it says in his word, the knowledge of God, Scripture. So for Jesus, this, this wasn't an issue of morality. It wasn't setting itself up against the knowledge of God. Fine, pay the tax, right? It's not a compromise in that sense. But I think for us to understand there was another layer here that he's contending with, and that's why he addresses it the way he does. And the other layer is identity. So, yes, it's not a morality issue, but maybe it's an identity issue. And that's why he urges Peter to consider his citizenship. So read in verse 25 with me. He responds by saying, 
What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? From when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. See, Jesus is asking a critical question. It requires that we understand our citizenship. His question is, what does my citizenship require of me? I think you need to ask that. I think I need to ask that question when we're trying to discern, is this a hill I should die on? What does my citizenship require of me? And recognize that we have a citizenship of heaven, eternal citizenship as Christians, and we have citizenship on earth. So what do both of those require of me? Jesus had citizenship of heaven. He was the son of, was and is the son of God. And yet a citizenship as a Hebrew man. What do both citizenships require of me? If I'm a citizen of heaven, an heir nonetheless, then I'm exempt from the earthly tax. Yes, but I'm also a citizen of the Jewish community with a custom of paying an annual temple tax. And I have dual citizenship and my citizenship in heaven is not compromised by be providing for the citizenship on earth. Therefore, I would pay the tax. To see the logic, how it works out for Jesus. There's this healthy line that I think we have to walk down in distinguishing and discerning which citizenship we are serving. And it's an important question because the Christian church of 2023, I believe, is at a critical crossroads in their understanding of citizenship. We as the church need to understand our citizenship desperately. And here's two mistakes that I see us making. The first is that we are overly entangled in the affairs of the world and we either forget or we neglect our heavenly citizenship. This might manifest as legalism. It might be, oh, pay the tax, always pay the tax, never upset the system. I always pay the tax. Or maybe it is a full-blown effort to construct a kingdom on earth of social policy and religious system and financial equity that falsely emulates the eternal kingdom in which we are true citizens. Getting overly involved in the construction of our systems on this earth. The second mistake I think we make is to dismiss genuine concerns of the world which forfeit our credibility as a citizen of the world. So we have dual citizenship. We don't want to become overly entangled in the world, but we also don't want to unduly dismiss the genuine concerns of the world and forfeit any kind of credibility. Do you see the difference? At best, I think that, that mentality it blows off the cares of our friends and our neighbors as irrelevant. But at worst, the damage that we could do is tick off the world so blatantly by defying the things that the world cares about so that they never hear the message of the true gospel. Don't pay tax because I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't have to pay the tax, right? That comes, in my mind, from a a root of arrogance and pride that simply says, I don't have to do what you want me to do because I have a higher citizenship, which is true. But is it necessary according to your citizenship, to tick everybody off in the process. Right? Is that helpful? See, there there are bigger fish to fry. We need to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. And so, as Jesus says, don't 
Don't bother with it. Just pay the tax. Don't bother. This, this is not going to compromise your citizenship in heaven to pay the tax. Just do it. Take care of it. Right? And so before we take a stand, I think we need to finally understand the cost. It's the third point in your outline there. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. You see, I think at times in the gospel, we see Jesus forfeiting his rights without us considering what it cost him. Because there was always a cost to giving up rights. For Jesus, the cost was high. For us at times, the cost is low, but there will always be a cost to giving up your rights. And so I think it's helpful if we ask a couple of questions. If I stand down, if I give up my rights on this one, what will it cost me? And is that a price I'm willing to pay? What will it cost the church? And I think this is an important deliberation. In the simple example of scripture here, it's simply looking at it saying, if I, if I give in and pay the tax... What do I have to lose? Well, not much. You know, a couple of, of drachmas. Or if it's a, a moral issue, then we have to answer, ask the question in a different light and say, if I allow my kids to watch this show, if I give in, if this is not a battle worth me fighting, if I give in, what will it cost me? Will this normalize an unhealthy view of the world and view of self that I don't want to instill in my children? There is a cost here to giving in. So when we start to weigh the cost, it helps us navigate those decisions. Or if I stand down and refuse to fill in the last little section of that text bubble and get the last word in on my argument, what will it cost me? Will it dilute my argument if I refuse to have the last word? There will be a cost to standing down. And in Peter's case, it costs two shekels. And Jesus says then to Peter, go catch a fish because it's never about the money. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God always provides when we do the right thing. Isn't that true? And then the next question is, if I fight this one, if I take this battle on, what will it cost me? And is it worth the cost? Or what will it cost the church if I fight this battle? And there are times when Jesus certainly stood his ground. We can find him all over the first seven chapters of of the book of Matthew. He took a stand against the Pharisees on divorce, which we'll actually look at in a couple weeks. He took a stand against adultery and against immorality. He took a stand against violence in the garden with Peter. What will it cost if I take a stand? And so often I think the greatest cost for us, as it was for Jesus, is reputation. People will label you, right? If you take a stand for the things that you believe in, it will often cost you a reputation. And that's certainly true for us in the society that we live in, especially as a church, when we take a stand for something like a traditional biblical view of marriage, we become labeled, right, as exclusive or bigotrous. If we take a stand against domestic violence, sometimes that literally means us in in the role that we're in, occasionally standing between two parties. What will it cost me if I take that Stand, Or what will it cost me if I take a stand for the unborn, which we've done as a church? And by the way, this weekend marks a one-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And yeah, Kevin's excited. 
No, in all reality, I mean, there's a lot of work to, to be done. We have amazing ministries um, here that support women. That's, that's our first and foremost calling is to love and support um, both, both women in that, um, that have an unwanted pregnancy, but also children that are born into those environments. Um, and it means that we got to do what James says, and we need to take care of the orphans and the widows, and we need to care for um, children uh, through adoption and foster care. I know many of you have done that and stepped up and been in a shining light as the church in our community. So thank you for that. Um, but with, uh, with changing in policy, and policy is not everything, I recognize that um, with some of the state laws changing, it's estimated that over 30,000 children have been saved um, who've not been aborted um, this past year as a result of some of those changes. And so um, that, that's a, it's something worth noting as a church. What's it going to cost us, though, if we stand for that? Well, we, do, we get labeled as a church, right? Or like my friend Pam over, over at Tree of Life, you know, she gets threatening emails or she gets, you know, the building um, gets tagged. It's going to cost us something if we take a stand. Most often it's, it's a reputation. But what I want you to hear, and I know you know this and believe this when we walk through these decision-making processes, is some things are worth fighting for. Yeah, we, we have to weigh this out, and we've got to evaluate, is this a moral issue? Is this a kingdom issue, an identity issue? Is this going to have longer-term implications beyond me? I need to ask all those questions. But what will it cost me if I don't take a stand? What's the penalty of us giving in to a battle when we're not battling against flesh and blood, we're battling against the principalities, against Satan himself, who would like to draw away like a wolf, a sheep from the flock, who would like to entangle us, who would like to re-educate us, who would like to normalize sin. What will it cost us if we don't stand against sin, against Satan and his forces? There are some things worth fighting for. But we have to know which ones. We have to pick our battles. This is the tension that Daniel lived with in Babylon. And I'm thankful for his example because I really do think he chose his battles with wisdom. He valued an undefiled body. And so he refused to eat. He valued his prayer relationship with his creator, so he refused to stop praying. He valued his posture of worship before God and God alone, so he refused to bow. But he knew that the rest would not break him. Please, let's understand the things that are not going to break us and be willing to let those ones go. It will not break him to learn a different language. It will not break him to use a different currency currency or to add another tax. It won't break him in some senses to abstain from consuming. God will take care of him. But there are things that will draw us away, and knowing the difference is the most important battle of all. So as we conclude, I, I imagine you're sitting in much of the tension that I've sat in this week with asking myself, yeah, but still, how do I know, right? Great, I get it. You know, some things are worth fighting for and others you need to let go. 
I did not create for you a comprehensive list on the back of your outline that's like, battle's worth fighting for every Christian. (laughs) Right? Sorry, you have to figure that out. You have to walk that road and you have to allow for God to continue to enlighten and lead you in a way that will ultimately honor him and ultimately protect you. So I want to read uh, with one prayer. I'm going to close uh, from the book of uh, Philippians where Paul is writing. He's praying this prayer over the church in Philippi. um, And it is a beautiful prayer that I am going to pray in just a minute over you because this is the answer to us solving the problem of how do we know. So listen, he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Very helpful. It is my prayer that your love, he starts with love, as you're making these decisions, choosing your battles, figuring out which hills to die on, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's first, we start with love. And then knowledge. And where does knowledge come from? It comes from the Word of God. So that your love would abound more and more in knowledge, that you would have knowledge of the truth, that you would know the biblical narrative, the biblical worldview, how to see the world through the eyes of God, the knowledge. And then he said that you would have all discernments, Love, knowledge, and all discernment so that you could approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. That'll be my prayer for you, that you would have discernment as you continue to love those around you, as you have the knowledge of Scripture to inform your thought process, and the Holy Spirit gives you heavenly discernment to decide which hills to die on. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful, Lord, that you have given us a, a template and a track to run on, Lord, with processing through some of the difficulty in our world. Lord, we know these decisions aren't taken lightly. They don't come easy. But when we have to process through things like doctrine and theology, things about what we believe, things about what the world says they believe, things about, about relationships, how humans interact and interrelate to one another and how they relate to you. Lord, these things matter. And it's so easy for us to pick the fights that are, that are right in front of us or pick the fights that others feel so strongly passionate about and for us to be drawn away and distracted from the mission. So Lord, keep us focused, keep us on target. Help us to dismiss the things that are simply distractions and stay focused on the battles that matter most. Lead us, Lord, as we abound more and more with love. That our love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight, spiritual discernment brought to us by the Holy Spirit. That we could test and approve what is right and good, and we could remain pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. Commit these decisions to you. In your name I pray. Amen.